Well, you can turn in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Mark, Mark chapter 12, and we'll be in verses 1 through 12 this morning in the parable of the tenants. Some of you may know this about my story, and I speak of it often, is the fact that my dad was a pastor my whole life. He was a beloved shepherd to his people. He was faithful to God. He was faithful to my mom. He was faithful to my sister and I, and he was faithful to his churches. He only pastored three churches in his 40-plus years of ministry, and the one I have the most memories of is the one that he planted and pastored here in Borger for 22 years. Many of his sermons and Bible studies are seared in my memory as they were formative to me, and I will forever cherish them. One memory, is, I, one memory I have is that our church here in Borger was called a Hispanic Mission Church. A church here in town had funded us, had sent us, and helped us build a new worship space with offices as the church grew as a Hispanic congregation. But one of my dad's goals, and I remember him clearly articulating this, was that he wanted to wean us off of the funding of our sending church so that we could be a church standing on our own two feet and we could continue to send out church planters and missionaries that would continue the work our funding church had started in 1980. But here's the deal. My dad knew this would be a hard endeavor, but it would be worth it in the end. One of the sermons he preached on giving, I remember he used a cake, and leave it to me to remember that. He used a cake as an illustration. And he said, this cake represents all of the money you get from your job. And he sliced the cake in pieces and began to use each slice as what our money went to. An example, bills, entertainment, savings, etc. After he went through all the slices, there were just a few crumbs left and the words rang out to a captive audience. My dad said, is this what we have to offer God? Is the crumbs left at the end of our cake? This moment was tense as I vividly remember a few families getting up and walking out and leaving the service. But my dad didn't let up or let the moment become too much as he said this, and I remember what he said. He said, hermanos, when you preach to the wallet, you really preach to the heart. So why was this moment so tense? Because those people that got up and left perceived that the sermon illustration was about them. And as far as I can remember, those families never came back. I want to say, no, this sermon is not about money or giving, but it will be about our hearts. So in today's passage, Jesus will continue to press on the already growing tension between him and the Sanhedrin that were seeking to destroy him. We see these words used in Mark's narrative. Mark's narrative focuses in a little more and narrows in on the aspect of judgment. We saw this in chapter 11 with the fig tree and the merchants in the temple courts, and now the showdown has begun as the shadow of the cross is cast on the Son of God. But here's a few questions. Why does the judgment of God make us nervous? Especially in today's culture, 
We try and soften God's character and we speak less on his wrath, less on his judgment, and at times the punishment that will come to those found outside of Christ. God does not change, church. We need to know that. God does not change. And the God who spoke in the Old Testament continues to speak in the New Testament through the very word of God who is Christ. So here's a few questions uh, as we dive into our text. Will we listen and will, we, will this listening create in us either contempt for the Lord Jesus or will it create worship and a healthy fear of the Lord? A question that presses us further is, when we pass from this life to the next, will we know God as Father or will we know Him as Judge? So open, if you would, to Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. And read along with me, if you would. It says, And he began to speak to them in parables. He said, A man planted in a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Verse 6, he said still, he, he had still one other, excuse me, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told a parable against them. So they left him and went away. So let's look at the first part of verse 1. As we begin to close out Mark's narrative, we get to the last parable that Mark chooses to include. And Jesus will still speak in parabolic form, but this is the, act, this is the last actual illustration he stops and makes room for. So why is this important? Listen, church. Because it serves as a warning. As a reminder, parables are metaphors. They are narratives, either long or short, with two levels of meaning. And at times, Jesus would share a parable and the meaning would be hidden from the religious leaders trying to trap him. This particular time, though, in Mark chapter 12, the parable is very clear who it's about. So if you look at verse 1, it says, he began to speak to them in parables. He began to speak to them. So who is the them? This is where the idea of, of it being a warning needs to be noticed. Who is the them? This is the Sanhedrin or the Jewish high court. They had questioned Jesus' authority at the end of chapter 11, but when he questions them, they are fearful of the people. The Bible says they are fearful of the people so they give him the best non-answer they could come up with, like a petulant teenager. And I have a few of these. And usually I'll ask them something, they'll say, I don't know. 
That's, what, that's the way these religious leaders respond. Well, we don't know. So I'm curious if we catch something before we move on. Do you see how these religious elite are afraid of the people? I think we have it on the screen, Mark chapter 11, verse 32. Can you throw that up there, buddy? It says, but shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people. They were afraid of the people. Their convictions were strong, but were they strong enough to die for? No matter the repercussions, does our belief in Christ, does our allegiance to the Son of God, does it make us bold or does it make us puny? Are you, Christian, are you more worried about what the people, what people will think of you or think of what you say or are you more concerned about the glory of God? Look at Galatians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul's words are clear here. Galatians chapter 1 verse 10. He says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Listen, we need to heed the warning that's given to us in this parable. Are we more concerned about what people think of us, or are we more concerned about the glory of God? Let's move on to the last half of verse 1 into verse 8. Then Jesus begins this illustration, and his language is so masterful as it begins to cut to the heart of those it targets. He uses language that would have not been lost on them, language of a vineyard. And I can imagine Jesus standing by the golden grapevine carved in the walls of the temple courts that served as a national symbol for, for Israel. Look back at the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7. It should be on the screen for you. The prophet Isaiah says this. He says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done, done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Verse 5. And now I will tell you what I, what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. And briars and thorns shall grow up. I, shall, I will also command the clouds that they rain, no rain upon it. Verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So we need to make note of this. The vineyard is Israel, or God's chosen people. The question is, who is the man in the parable that builds this vineyard and makes the investment? It's God himself. He goes through the trouble of protecting it and making sure it can bear fruit for years to come. 
But the parable takes a turn, and it says he leased it or he rented it out to some vine dressers or some tenants whose job it would be to treat the vineyard as their own, to pay rent and enjoy the fruit it bore. But it still belonged to the man who planted it and protected it. And for the man to go into another country, this was common practice in that day. So this, this wouldn't have raised any questions for the hearers. Simply, it was left in the hands of the tenants to steward. Look at verse 2. Rent comes due as the man sends out a servant to collect what is his as the season for the fruit that belonged to him. His portion needed to be picked and sent back with the man's servant. But things don't go so well for the servants. The, tenant takes, takes, the tenants take him and beat him and send him back to the owner empty-handed. So that's strike one. Look at verse four. The man sends another servant, and this time it gives more description as they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. Do we remember what happened to John the baptizer? They cut off his, what? His head. They struck his head and treated him shamefully. But after that, he sends another servant and they actually murder him. They are trying to send a message that they are not going to pay what is owed. They have set the rules and have now become self-proclaimed authorities over the vineyard. They are, listen, they are modern-day squatters. And then the end of verse 5 says that this continued to happen as the man sent servant after servant, and they either beat them or killed them. This is the epitome of shooting the messenger. Let's look at verses 6 through 8. So instead of the owner coming and dealing with them harshly, this shows God's long-suffering. He sends his beloved son. Mark uses that language on purpose because Jesus uses that language on purpose. This was the same language that we would have seen at the baptism of Jesus and the transfiguration of Jesus. This is my beloved son. And he sends them with his, he sends this beloved son with his authority to collect what is due. But these tenants, they come up with a plan as they know that this son is the heir to this vineyard. They know that this son will receive this as an inheritance. They choose to kill him as they will inherit the vineyard. So they do exactly that, Jesus says in the parable. They killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Look at verses 9 to 11. A question hangs as thick as the vines of the vineyard of what the owner will do now. Jesus asks this question, what will the owner do now? These wicked tenants have assaulted, they've beat, and they've killed their servants that, and worst of all, his beloved son, they rejected and they killed. But Jesus doesn't leave any room for guessing here. The owner will come and judge the wicked servants. He will destroy them and move on by giving the vineyard to others, the parable says. And then verses 10 through 11, Jesus, do, Jesus does exactly what he did in the desert when being tempted by Satan. Do you notice this? He quotes Scripture. Turn, if you would, in the Old Testament to Psalm 118, to the Psalter. 
Psalm 118, beginning in verse 22. says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. I'm sorry, I read too far. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This was a messianic and prophetic psalm and was used in the liturgy of ancient Israel. They would actually sing this song in their gatherings. And Jesus quoting this is equivalent to him saying that he is the Messiah. Church, look at me for just a moment. Here, Jesus is saying that he is God. He is the one who is coming to save the people from their sins. In that day, that would have been blasphemous. For someone to stand up and say, look, this is happening before you. The cornerstone that the, the builders rejected is here. This would have been him saying, I am the Messiah. I am the anointed one, the Christos, the one who has come to save you from your sins. And then the last verse, verse 12, back in Mark chapter 12. The Sanhedrin is these, this group of religious leaders. They're still wanting to silence Jesus, especially after being called out in a very public format. And verse 12 clarifies that they perceived that he told this parable against them. They knew that he was speaking against them. But they still feared the people. as They, they sought to, to arrest him, but they choose to leave with their, their tails tucked between their legs. And this would not be the last time we hear from the Sanhedrin. So imagine this to be continued coming up in verse 12. So we need to interpret and apply this correctly, this parable from Jesus. This parable may not be clear to us yet, so let's interpret it the way Jesus intended it to be heard. We, we said from the outset that the man, the owner of the vineyard is God. He's the creator. And the vineyard is Israel. God leases out the vineyard to the tenants who are the leaders of Israel, the lead servants, the stewards of the people. An example, the priests, the scribes, the elders. And when the time comes that this, se- this season, this harvest, he sends his servants to collect Servants being his prophets or his mouthpieces, and they reject his message, they beat them, and even kill them. Look at Matthew 23, when Jesus laments here. Matthew 23, verse 37. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the what? Prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus laments here, and he says, you killed the prophets who God sent to you. Dr. John MacArthur comments on this season, on this season or this harvest. He says that instead of the fruit of obedient, and lo- obedient worship and love for God, Israel produced only the worthless grapes of rebellion and unrighteousness. So the owner sends his beloved son, who is Jesus, the son of God, begotten by the father, very God of very God, to the vineyard. And they reject his message 
by killing him and casting him out. Listen, this was all happening before their very eyes. So when Jesus gets to the question, to this question that he asks, there is only one clear answer. Listen, church. Judgment is coming to the house of God. Judgment comes first to the house of God. We have to deal with that tension. Jesus leaves that, that thick tension between him and the religious leaders just sitting there. Judgment is coming to the house of God. He goes on and he says, the owner will destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others, those others being the Gentiles, those outside of Judaism. So when Jesus quotes the, the psalmist or the Psalter, the men of the Ju Jewish high court, they would have been three things. They would have been seething with anger, they would have been questioning their existence, and they would have needed a change of pants. Those three things. They would have been terrified. They would have, been know, they would have known that, they were speak, that Jesus was speaking of them. They were fearful in that moment, but they were also angry. There's this mixed bag of emotion that's happening with the Sanhedrin. And then you think about the cornerstone that Jesus speaks of here. This cornerstone was needed to set the building right. The architect who drew up the plans could not accurately construct any edifice without the cornerstone. And Jesus, listen, Jesus is the chief or the supreme cornerstone. He is the cornerstone that every building needs. But because he did not fit the agenda or the presuppositions of the religious leaders, he was rejected. And it honestly, it just didn't matter to them. What Jesus was doing, what he was saying, how he was teaching with authority, it didn't really matter to the religious leaders. They were blinded by their anger. They were blinded by their fear. And most of all, they were blinded by their pride. So it really didn't matter. But listen, Jesus quotes Psalm 118, and there's a phrase in there that we need to pay attention to. He says, this was the Lord's doing. It's not like it was just left up to fate. Or let's just see what happens. The psalm says, it was the Lord's doing. We rewind a few psalms, Psalm 115, and it says, our Lord sits, our God sits in the heavens, and he does all that you and I please. Is that what it says? It says, all that he pleases. Listen, God does not bend to our will. God does not bend to anyone's will. God is God and we are not. We need that consistent reminder. I need that consistent reminder on a daily basis that he is creator and I am created. My life is this long compared to a God who is infinite. We cannot even wrap our minds around that fact. And here Jesus says, this was the Lord's doing. He set him as the chief cornerstone. And I want this to be clear today. 
And I want to end with some questions of application. When, listen church, when will Jesus be enough? When will he be enough? Are you trying to make him something he's not? Or do you have some expectation, expectation of him that he will never meet? Are you, listen, are you still seeking a sign that will never come? Often as a pastor, I, I hear that from people. I hear, well, I'm just waiting for a sign from God. What, what more sign do we need? That the very Son of God, wrapped in flesh, came and lived a life you and I could never live perfectly before the Father. And He gave Himself up willingly, gave Himself up willingly on a Roman cross. He gave up His life for you and me. And after three days, defeated death, walking out of that grave and ascending to the right hand of the Father, where He sits now awaiting the day when His Father says, go. Go and collect your church. Go collect your vineyard. Go and collect them. What other sign are we seeking? When will Jesus be enough? Is, are you trying to make Jesus fit into this expectation that you may have? The sign has come in the Son of God, the beloved Son of the Father. Listen, if you are sealed and filled with the Holy Spirit, you will quit this vain pursuit of this life. You will crucify the old person and carry the cross as Christ did. Listen, church. Rest in what the Lord has done in Christ, the chief cornerstone, and pray just as he says in Psalm 118, verse 23, pray that it may be marvelous in our eyes. Is it marvelous in our eyes? What God has done in Christ for us. Listen, our culture nowadays, especially here in the United States, they don't want to hear this message. I'll be completely honest with you. Sometimes I don't want to hear this message. But Jesus speaks specifically here about judgment that is coming. And we need to deal with this. We need to deal with the tension that Jesus gives here to those people who think they can be good enough for God. None of us, just like Kristen prayed, just, she prays this every Sunday. She has it on repeat for us because she wants it to get deep into our guts that all we bring to the table is what? Sin. We need to be forgiven of our sin because one sin is enough to offend a holy God. Mind you, all the sins that we accrue over all the, all the years that we live. So I want to continue to press on that. When will Jesus be enough? Will you continue to seek a sign that you'll never get? Are you, are you trying to make him fit some expectation that you have of him? Maybe what we're trying to do is we're trying to get him to bend to our will. And time and time again, the Bible speaks clearly that God is God and we are not. That He is creator and He created us. He fashioned us with His very words and made us His own. So church, listen, there is a day that's coming. There is a day that's coming.
And for some of us, we have people in our lives who we love dearly. And we don't want to see them die outside of Christ. This is why the gospel is so important. This is why we need to know the gospel. This is why we need to believe the gospel. You may have a coworker, you may have a family member, you may have a good friend who says, well, I, I just don't need any of that. Continue to pray for them. Beg the Lord. Lord, would you save them? Would you draw them to your son? By the power of the Spirit, pray for them. Get familiar with the gospel. Let it come out of you often so that people know you're serious about this. Listen, I think about this often, and my wife says it's because I'm just built this way. I just, I'm always expecting some kind of catastrophe to happen, especially when we're in a restaurant. I have to sit with my back to the wall so I can see who's coming in because I'm going to protect my family, right? That's what a shepherd does. But there is a day that's coming. There is a day that's coming. I don't know if it's soon. I don't know if it's later. There is a day that's coming where we won't get to do this as often as we want. There is a day right now in the Chinese church, they have to hide to gather to read God's word. Can you imagine doing that? Having to find a location so that the government won't find us. There is a day that's coming. Listen, church, there is a day of great persecution that is coming to the church because judgment will come to the house of God first. Are we ready? Are we sure of who we are in Christ? Do we rest in his finished work that even if my life was taken from me, it would just be transporting me to the next life in his presence? Are we ready? Are we ready for the day that is coming? Let's be ready, church. I'm going to invite the band to go ahead and come up. And this is why we make an invitation every week. Listen, if you are here this morning and you may not know Christ as your Savior, come to Him. Repent of your sin. Put your sin to death and say, I don't want to live this way anymore. I want to look to Christ and find satisfaction there. Maybe you're trying to f find satisfaction in other things. Maybe it's your job, maybe it's your hobby, maybe it's your marriage, whatever it is, you're trying to find satisfaction in that and you're not finding it. Find satisfaction for a lifetime in Christ. Repent of your sin. Look to him who saves. Because the thing is, listen, tomorrow is not promised. Tomorrow is not promised. And if you die outside of Christ, if you die outside of Christ, you will face God, not as Father, but as Judge. And if you are in Christ this morning, do we know that Christ bore the judgment of God for us? On that wretched Roman cross, He bore God's judgment in our place, in your place and in mine. That's a reason to sing this morning. That's a reason to celebrate baptism. That's a re reason to, to sit back and rest in what Christ has done. That's really good news for the Christian, that we don't have to bear the judgment 
of God one day because Christ bore it in our place. I'll be in the back of the room. If you need prayer, if you need counsel, if you need anything, I'd love to chat with you. Uh, We're going to celebrate some baptisms here in just a moment, and I want us to truly celebrate when we watch Noah and Matthias be baptized. Amen? Let's pray.